It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Hannah Feldman, along with my co-host, Steve Scrovan. Hi, Steve. Hi, Hannah. It's great having you take the con this week. Happy to do it. Give your uh, voice a little rest. We're also here with our other co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Morning, Hannah. And of course, the man of the hour, Ralph Mader. Good morning, Ralph. Morning, and welcome, listeners. We have to be especially alert for 2024, a portentous year, if there ever was one in American history. We've been covering the situation in Palestine since the Hamas attacks in Israel on October 7th and the ongoing Israeli bombing of Gaza. We've heard from Arabs, we've heard from Israelis, and we've heard from American Jews. Today, we're going to discuss a Christian perspective. A lot of the most influential American Zionist activity in groups like APAC come from evangelical Christians. And what's happening in Gaza today has all the hallmarks of a modern-day crusade. It's a bit of a Christmas pantomime, with Israel playing the role of the medieval crusader states, the U.S. understudying for the Holy Roman Empire, and the Palestinians, well, they're reprising their role as the people who already live in Palestine. But do those evangelical Zionists speak for all Christians? Our guests today would answer no. In the first half of the program, we're going to talk to the Reverend Dr. Donald Wagner. He's the National Program Director of an organization called Friends of Sibyl North America. They're a nonprofit Christian ecumenical organization seeking justice and peace in the Holy Land through education, advocacy, and nonviolent action. Then we're going to close out 2023 with an open forum. Steve, David, and I have some questions for Ralph, and there's a listener question that's been burning a hole in our mailbag for a while. We're going to get Ralph's take on the Supreme Court, AI, and the War Powers Act. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our steadfast corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, Zionist Christians may have the loudest voices, but they're not the only voices. David? Reverend Dr. Donald Wagner is the National Program Director of Friends of Sabeel, North America, a nonprofit Christian ecumenical organization seeking justice and peace in the Holy Land through education, advocacy, and nonviolent action. Prior to his present position, Reverend Dr. Wagner was a professor of Middle Eastern Studies at North Park University in Chicago, where he also directed the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. He has written four books, including Anxious for Armageddon, A Critique of Christian Zionism, Dying in the Land of Promise, Palestine and Palestinian Christianity from Pentecost to 2000, and Glory to God in the Lowest Journeys to an Unholy Land. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thanks so much for having me. Look forward to it. Welcome indeed. You've given us permission to call you Don. Absolutely. Uh, we're very informal on this program. 41 years ago, you were in Lebanon when the attack by the Israelis on Lebanon trying to get the PLO, Palestine Liberation Organization, leaders out of Lebanon into some sort of exile. You wrote a recollection of that in June in an opinion piece, and you titled it, I saw Israel's, quote, final solution to the Palestinian problem, quote, in Lebanon 41 years ago, and I see it again today. Could you tell us about that phrase that you have in quotes and the context 
and your experience on NBC. Yeah, sure. Thanks. And uh, grateful to be with you, Ralph. I led a group of relief and development organizations to Lebanon in late May 82, and we got trapped in the Israeli invasion and the bombing that started actually on the 4th of June. We went around, we visited hospitals, we saw a hospital wing that had been bombed, we watched apartment buildings, refugee camps being hit, and then the roughest was we're at a Red Crescent hospital when ambulances rolled in with 36 teenage girls, 19 in body bags after Israel hit their UN school buses, which were clearly marked I returned after about a week and asked my staff, I was the director of the Palestine Human Rights Campaign at the time, to get some media. So after a day back from Lebanon, they got me on an NBC radio interview with an Israeli general. His last name was Shromi, and he dictated that he would not allow me in the studio for the interview. So I protested that, but it had already been arranged. In the course of the interview, he described Israel's precision bombing in selected targets, sparing civilians, and going after the terrorist PLO. And I said the bombing was not precise because it was primarily Palestinian and Lebanese civilians who were killed. I mentioned the schoolgirls. He went on to say it's a complete fabrication. And then he said Israel must defend itself from the PLO terrorists. And this is our final solution to the Palestinian problem. So I jumped on that opening and said, my God, you are endorsing genocide of an entire people. This is what the Nazis said about your people. I think you owe the audience an apology. The interview deteriorated from that point, and the host kind of killed the interview. And I went back to the office and had a call, and he said, their phone lines lit up with hatred for what I had said And they said it should have been the reverse for what the general said. But they said, no, you will never be allowed back in an NBC studio. So that was that. But this is what we're seeing today. Actually, from the Nakba through the war in Lebanon to what's going on in Gaza, this is the final solution. And Netanyahu, members of his cabinet, has said, yeah, we're going to expel as many Gazans as possible into the Sinai. And we'll let Jordan, Egypt, Canada, probably the U.S. take them and be done with them. Final solution again. So this is genocide. It's a war crime. And we're witnessing it every day. Well, what's coming up is an astounding piece of legislation early next year. $14.3 billion, with a B, dollars to yep. support Israel's operations in Gaza. And there are some Democratic senators, maybe as many as 25 of them, led by Senator Van Hollen from Maryland, who are saying, hey, wait, we have to have conditions here. We can't have this money go to produce more weaponry and produce more destruction. But it looks like they're in the minority here because both the Republican and Democrat leadership in the House and Senate are favoring this bill. Now, we've called this bill the genocide tax for a simple reason. Why should the American taxpayer be charged for a blunder, a colossal blunder, and a collapse of Israeli defenses on October 7th? I mean, it is so astounding that everything in terms of detection equipment 
was disabled and the soldiers were not alert. It indicates that maybe some of the writings in the Israeli press pointing to, was this another Netanyahu lure maneuver in order to use it as a provocation, although he probably wouldn't have thought it went that far, in order to attack the Hamas. Now, this is a very complicated relation between Netanyahu and Hamas. Can you describe that? Well, I was on a sabbatical trying to write a book in 87 in the fall when the first intifada broke out. And I went over to Palestine and went right down to Gaza within a week of the intifada breaking out. And I was staying with one of the relief and development guys. And he drove me around and you could see kids in the street throwing stones at the IDF tires burning, IDF chasing the kids down alleys. He said, I want to take you by a mosque. We're not sure about this one because it's fairly new. So we went by and he said, let's just sit here for a while. Again, you had tires burning in front of the mosque. No IDF soldiers around. Kids threw stones at the military. They left them alone. And he said, what do you see here? I said, my God, the IDF doesn't seem to care. They're not retaliating against this mosque. He said, yeah, it's a new group. And we are doing research on the Sheikh. They're calling themselves Hamas. So it looked like from the beginning, that was a protected movement. And the idea was to drive a wedge between the PLO that was strong and really powerful in Gaza and all over the West Bank, although the Intifada was totally independent of the PLO in the first days. But Israel helped foster. They let money come in. We don't know from where. The Saudis could have been involved, Qatar, the Gulf. But they allowed Hamas to grow as a divide-and-conquer strategy against the PLO, which was more secular. So the roots go back to then, and it's continued. And I know under Netanyahu, he's allowed the money to continue to come in because it gives him plausible denial. We have nobody to negotiate with. Netanyahu is totally against the Palestinian state and any future resolution. So it's a convenient denial. And further, I think there are reports that right around October 7th, the far right wing settlers, Ben Gavir and Schmoltrich and others, ask for security coverage to protect some of their festivals for the Feast of Tabernacles. And the IDF was pulled out from those areas that Hamas went into. So we don't know the details, don't want to be too conspiratorial, but whether it's just security lapses or if it was a coordination, Netanyahu and his folks are culpable for allowing Hamas to come across and do this. And by the way, anyway. again, in the Israeli press, there are all kinds of reports that are being subject to repression. The New York Times had an article and others on how the voices of dissent are being repressed in Israel. And reporters for Haaretz, the great independent Israeli newspaper, are really being subject to a lot of intimidation. But what they're upset about is why... There aren't official investigations of what happened on October 7th immediately instead of after the war is over, which Netanyahu has a vested interest in prolonging because he's under indictment for corruption in all the things, the investigation to find out the truth, what happened, and to further the prosecution of Netanyahu. 
they're all on hold because of the invasion of Gaza is taking longer and longer. Now, that's another issue of suspicion, because in many parliamentary countries, this kind of failure of defense would have resulted immediately in the fall of the coalition, and the ministers and the prime ministers would have to resign. But that didn't happen in the narrow majority coalition headed by Netanyahu with his extreme right-wing parties that have nothing but hatred and racial antagonism to the Palestinians. The magazine Middle East Report reprinted some time ago some of the unbelievable racial epithets and destructive, violent comments by high Israeli officials, prime ministers, former prime ministers, ministers in the cabinet over the years, which indicate that this is a long-standing level of bigotry. So what is the position of the organized Christian churches here? They've just seen that the Holy Family Catholic Church and convent were hit by Israeli missiles in Gaza. The Greek Orthodox Church was hit earlier, the Indonesian Church. There are very few Christians in Gaza. But two quick questions. Why is Israel hitting these areas? And the second is, what extent do you think that the Pope and the Catholic Church, the Protestant churches, the Baptist churches have done, and what do you think they should do? Well, there's a lot there. In terms of Israel hitting the churches, you know, there's no real restrictions. I mean, they're using bombardment, 85% supplied by the United States, that is, you know, randomly hitting and killing civilians. This is their strategy. They've so demonized the Palestinians that they are absolutely trying to annihilate them. As I said earlier, the final solution. Avi Schleim, a great Oxford University Jewish historian, recently said this, and this is a quote, the Nazi dehumanization of the Jews was a major factor in paving the way for the death camps. Israel's demonization of the Palestinians, calling them animals and terrorists, is a similarly dangerous dynamic that can be used to justify the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. And I believe Netanyahu's endgame is to force the Palestinians out, kill as many as possible, and then expel them into the Gaza. Avi Dichter, who was a cabinet member, said, we are rolling out the Gaza Nakba, which is 1948-49 ethnic cleansing operation. So it's clear what they're doing And the Biden administration has rehabilitated a criminal in Netanyahu and enabled all this to happen. Now, the church's silence is just appalling to me, and we're trying to awaken them. The Presbyterians and the United Church of Christ are a little bit better than the others. The Pope has strongly condemned this as terrorism, but it doesn't filter down because so many of the church hierarchy are intimidated by the ADL and other accusations of anti-Semitism, let alone the evangelical Christian right supports Israel, whatever they do, because it's paving the way for the return of Jesus. And that's for the Speaker of the House now, Johnson, who holds those kinds of views. So this has impact on Congress. And so the church needs to be awakened. And you have Christians from the West Bank, Bethlehem, Gaza, crying out. And a great sermon was preached by a friend of mine, Reverend Munther Isaac, on Christmas Eve, saying that 
we will find God and Jesus in the rubble, and we must be there. And he condemned the silence of the church globally. So we have a lot to do in kind of uh, mobilizing the church. I read the statement by the National Council of Churches and the Conference of Catholic Bishops. They were quite strong in condemning what Israeli slaughter in Gaza, but a statement is not enough. They're not up on Capitol Hill. They're not addressing the growing protests of Israel of Jewish Voice for Peace. You know, if not now, now, standing together. You know, they can develop an ecumenical civic protest that might reach Capitol Hill, which is the source of the entire power over there, the money, the weapons, the diplomatic cover, the vetoes, and the Security Council. All this can go back to Congress, not just Joe Biden. John, Joe Biden has called himself, quote, a practicing Catholic, end quote. And during an interview with the Jesuit Review on September 21, 2015, He emphatically identified, quote, abuse of power, end quote, as a cardinal sin, worse than all others, that should be arrested and defeated. And he said that bedrock Catholic doctrine requires treating every person with dignity. Well, how do you square this? You're a reverend. To what extent does someone like Joe Biden, listening and reading what the Pope is saying and what words he's using sorrowfully, This is Pope Francis, who, when he was a cleric in Argentina, was a main supporter of Jewish Argentine rights against bigotry. And he called what's going on in Gaza terror. And he said, after October 7th, one terror can never justify another terror. What kind of standards do you hold Joe Biden? Never mind political, constitutional, ethical standards, peace standards. How about holding him to his self-definition as a practicing Catholic. Well, I wish he would listen to the Pope and take seriously what the Pope has said. But I think Biden's commitment to Zionism overrides any theology, and he doesn't have the depth to grasp the difference at this point until we see some change. He's always been a Zionist. He said before APEC at one point, I take money from APAC and I donate money to APAC. I am a Zionist. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. That means he's embraced a certain narrative interpretation of theology that elevates a national state and the ideology of Zionism, which privileges one race, one party, one country over all others grants them right to the land and right to annihilate any opposition. So I think he's still there until we see some change. There are many progressive Catholics, many progressive movements in all major denominations, Episcopal, Presbyterian, lobbing the hill, demanding a ceasefire, trying to get a change on the hill. But I think others just are not going to buy it. The lobby is powerful. And so many have bought into a type of Christian Zionism, whether it's a liberal Protestant and Catholic or a fundamentalist evangelical. So right now we're stuck until we see a shift in policy. Technically, the U.S. is now a co-belligerent under international law with Israel. The Genocide Convention, it calls for the prevention of the crime of genocide. We have enabled it. 
We've enabled it Israel's intent and the action. Therefore, we are complicit with the funding. And that means if the U.S. can block the International Criminal Court, but maybe not the International Court of Justice. So there's already the Center for Constitutional Rights already has a legal brief that will charge Biden, Blinken, and others with genocide. And this is the way it has to go, I think, you know, to maybe awaken something in the White House and on the Hill. Well, what Congress is preparing to do with this genocide tax of $14.3 billion is to pass it without any public hearings at the House Armed Services Committee, Republican-dominated, and the Senate Armed Services Committee, Democrat dominated. Yeah. You know, the White House uses the phrase unconditional support. It's also procedural autocracy, where you, you right. can't even have the procedures in Congress be open and fair before a decision is reached. Now, Netanyahu keeps saying that he's doing this in Gaza, so Hamas can never be an existential threat to Israel again. Hamas never was an existential threat. They were embargoed. All they had was handheld weapons few rocket grenade launchers against one of the most powerful armies, navies, and air force in the world, the Israeli military. And, a nuclear, and of course, and as one power. Holocaust survivor told the New York Times in Israel, he said about October 7, he said, quote, it should never have happened, unquote. So obviously, if the Israeli defense is modestly alert, Hamas could never do this again even if it was able to smuggle some arms in in order to breach the border. So he's exaggerating this in order to justify driving the Palestinians out of Gaza and out of the West Bank. And there's a lot of very powerful, antagonistic verbal support for that in the last few decades by right-wing extreme Israeli politicians. That's why when you criticize what's going on there, always use the word Israeli government, because there are many, many Israelis who disagree and oppose Netanyahu, not only for what he wanted to do with weakening the judicial system in Israel, but in the Israeli foreign policy. And so it's it's a mistake just to refer to the Israeli society, because they're very, very courageous groups. And so we should be very laudatory of the dissenters under extreme pressure going on in Israel at the same time. One of the few things that gives me hope after working on this issue for 45 years is the power of the young American Jewish and global Jewish activists. They're not buying the Netanyahu line. They range from being embarrassed to just angry about what Netanyahu and the ADL, APAC have done to Judaism and blending it with Zionism. So these are the prophetic movements that are taking us back to authentic Judaism and the Torah, which is based on justice, tikkun olam, healing of the world. And there are movements now of Black Lives Matter, young Islamic groups. We're working with Americans from Muslims in Palestine and others here in Chicago, Jewish Voice for Peace, if not now, to form a movement, a coalition at the grassroots. And we're proud to be part of a group that's the leadership is under 40. And my wife and I are listening and taking their lead. She's Palestinian, by the way. So the hope is this young movement and the grassroots from the bottom up. 
but unfortunately, we're not making the dent we need to at the top, at Congress, with the media, and mainstream media. Social media is great. Then, as you said, many progressive Israelis who are now under real fire and scrutiny, you know, with this extreme government that's clamping down on their activism, not to mention the West Bank, where these settlers are out of control, where we have family over there near Ramallah, you know, afraid to let their kids out of the house and don't know who's going to come back at the end of the day. So this will end. We don't know when, but I think all the listeners just need to mobilize their letters, their calls, and repeat them daily to Congress to stop this 14 point whatever billion, you know, which is a genocide tax, as you rightly say. You know, we need to do our part, whether it's churches, mosques, synagogues, <laughs> your clubs. We need to be more activated because this is a defining moment, really, of the rule of law. And if the U.S. will stand by it or support what is actually a genocide. In terms of dire necessity, what needs to be done is a ceasefire and allowing U.N. inspection of hundreds of trucks now at the border for yes. humanitarian relief with food, water, medicine, shelter and materials, etc. And this is where Biden will be cursed forever by the judgment of history. He has allocated the money for thousands of trucks coming in from Egypt, humanitarian, and the Israelis are letting in a dribble of trucks, maybe 20 or so a day, because they're holding them up and they're so-called inspecting them. And he's not doing anything about that. So he calls for humanitarian aid. He's using U.S. tax dollars to provide hundreds of trucks a day that can come in, desperately needed by sick, starving, dying Palestinian families who had nothing to do with October 7th, many of whom probably do not support Hamas in the first place. They just want to get through the day and raise their families in peace. And he can't call Netanyahu and say, look, I'm finished with urging you finished with begging you, you will let hundreds of these humanitarian trucks in, and the only way they can reach their destination, the dying, starving people of Gaza, is for you to stop bombing and enforce a ceasefire. That's what Joe Biden can do. But he's weak. He's indentured. He's yes. intimidated by these powers that be. And most of it is he knows that Congress will turn against him. I can envision a private conversation between Netanyahu and Biden, and a hypothetical Biden said, you will let hundreds of trucks in and enforce a ceasefire, Mr. Netanyahu. And Netanyahu can say to him, Joe, I heard what you just said. Why don't you take it up with our Congress? So uh -huh. Congress, there is a huge responsibility here, one by one, senator by senator, representative by representative. Call them, peacefully protest around our local offices, and join some of these various groups that Reverend Don Wagner just pointed out. I'd like to add one thing to the ask, and that is to lift the illegal blockade on Gaza that the U.S. has supported and open up more access points to the north, east, west, and south of Gaza so that up to 500 trucks a day can get in, which was the level before October 7th. So call Congress, put the heat on, call the White House, as Ralph said, and do it more than once. 
because this really is a defining moment with this genocide bill. And one thing you can also add is that military aid to any country should be conditioned upon international law and humanitarian human rights performance. That is the U.S. Arms Export Control Act of 1976 and the Leahy laws that were passed later. And none of that has applied to Israel. Now's the time to do that. Can you do a two-state solution without folding Hamas into the negotiations? And I would assume the Hamas leadership is in Doha. Are they prepared to make the transition that Yasser Arafat supposedly was to go from warrior to statesman? Well, I think Hamas revised its charter in, I think, 2017 that showed an opening to a Palestinian state anywhere. But with full Israeli withdrawal from the occupied territories and end to the settlement, et cetera, et cetera. And the state must be, have the right of self-determination and political rights and control over the air, land, everything under that state. Right now, I don't think a two-state solution is possible because the U.S. backing Israel has allowed the settlements to destroy that opportunity. You know, the Palestinians live in little enclaves surrounded by settlers and the military. But the right to a state could be negotiated and get strong support. And I think, you know, there may be some people like Marwan Barghouti, who's in prison right now, who would rally Palestinians behind them, whoever they are, whatever their political party. But Israel has them in prison. And there are others. So you need to appoint a Palestinian group. The Palestinian Authority is bankrupt and unpopular. So there has to be a new movement. I think a revived PLO opening up all the Palestinians in diaspora is what needs to happen to provide Palestinian leadership for the future. And folding Hamas into the PLO is what some people are suggesting. But would Hamas agree to be absorbed into the PLO? I don't know. It's, it remains to be seen. Until now, they didn't want anything to do with the PA. But I think if you can remove the PA and open up, you know, just get creative and open up new possibilities in a global new PLO that is not the PA and not controlled by the U.S. and Israel, you might have an opportunity, whether it's Hamas or some other group, in the last 10 years, Don, at least there's a growing movement for a one-state solution. And we had yes. Nico Pellet, author of The General's Son, a Israeli peace advocate, on our program. And he made an interesting point. He said, look, there's already a one-state. You're right. It's called Israel proper and controlling, occupying the rest of the 28% of Palestine called the West Bank. The river to the sea. In Gaza. He said, all that's needed is to give everybody living in Israel proper, Gaza and the West Bank, equal rights, exactly. like in South Africa. One yes. person, one vote. He said there yes. already is a one-state solution. But, of course, it never gets much attention in the mainstream press here because the focus is on a two-state solution, which the Israeli regime is adamantly opposed to, and Netanyahu has bragged about it in past years, right up to the current year, that he would never allow yeah. an independent, coexisting Palestinian state. Hannah? Reverend Wagner, my question is about how American fundamentalist Christian 
clergy fetishize the Holy Land. We've had previous guests speak to how Birthright Israel and other similar programs fetishize Israel and try to turn Zionism into a core tenet of American Judaism. Could you speak to how American Christianity, whichever relevant sects, how they fetishize the Holy Land and the work that you're doing to counteract that? Yeah, well, that's a book right there, but you can find it in my memoir, Glory to God in the Lowest. I deal with that. I grew up in this right-wing evangelical Christian Zionism. It's actually a form of fundamentalism. It actually also predates Zionism and worked with Zionism like as a handmaiden symbiotically back in the 1890s and so on. But Christian Zionism is an evangelical fundamentalist movement really elevates the modern state of Israel, and it equates biblical Israel with the modern state. That in itself is a heretical teaching. There's nothing in the Bible that says a modern state will be the fulfillment of prophecy. But this movement takes that kind of a direction, and it has kind of a three-act scenario to it. The first act is that we are now in a difficult period, but we must support Israel because that is not only the locus, but the movement that will bring Jesus back. The second act of this scenario is that soon we will enter a final period where Israel will be attacked from the north. Christians who are true believers as born-again Christians will be raptured, lifted out of history conveniently. Now, this is all heresy, in my opinion. So two-thirds of the Jews will die in the final battle of Armageddon. So that's Act 2. And Act 3 is that Jesus comes back, and you have a chance to build a thousand-year rule and convert to Christianity or go to hell. A great Jewish writer, Gershom Gornberg, was on 60 Minutes once, and he was asked about that. He said, yeah, it's a three-act scenario. And we Jews, two-thirds of us die in Act 2, or we have to convert to Christianity. He said, as a Jew, I don't like my chances. So that's a summary of the movement. It's very strong. It has a movement called Christians United for Israel, which has offices in every state, mobilizes groups, and Trump loved them, and he had John Hagee, the director, on. They work hand-in-glove with the pro-Israel lobby APAC, to mobilize evangelical Christian support and funding. They are funding settlements. They raise money. Hagee raises money and gives millions of dollars to the Israeli Defense Forces. And it's all tax-exempt. That is a loophole that has to be closed to shut this down. And they're aligned with many of these militant settlement groups. So this is a dangerous movement, and it's not just in North America. Is growing in Central and South America, Africa, and Southeast Asia. So Netanyahu is reaping global support, and they bring people to Israel and spend a lot of money when no one else is coming, like now. So that's just a summary, but you can get more of this in my book, Anxious for Armageddon. And there's a great website that I worked on for a while called www.christianzionism.org where evangelicals critique this heretical theology and show alternatives. What we're hoping is we're going to have a powerful coalition working from the bottom up 
to mobilize more people at the grassroots to change Congress, but we're not quite there yet. So we need your help. Thank you very much, Reverend Dr. Don Wagner. Great to be with you. And please, everyone, get busy mobilizing those calls. This is an illegal operation. Our tax dollars are being used illegally in this case. So thank you all. Let's go to work. We've been speaking to the Reverend Dr. Donald Wagner. We'll link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, we've got some of our own questions for Ralph. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, December 29, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. Diddy and Milling will pay more than $1.8 million in penalties after a May 31, 2017 explosion that killed five workers and injured more than a dozen others. The company has also agreed to make extensive safety and health improvements at the facility. Diddy and Milling pled guilty on September 29, 2023 to charges related to falsifying the mill's cleaning and baghouse logs and agreed to pay restitution of more than $10 million to the 2017 explosion victims and a $1 million criminal fine. Diddy and Milling's agreement to make extensive safety improvements and work with OSHA and industry experts to protect the mill's workers will protect the safety and lives of their current and future employees, OSHA said. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Hannah Feldman, along with Steve Scrovan, David Feldman, and Ralph. Steve, why don't you kick things off with a listener question? This is going to be an open forum. We've got Ralph. We're going to ask questions. Ralph, we're going old school here. This is how the show began with David and I asking questions of Ralph before we, a few months later, started having guests. And we're going to start off, we're going to jump off with some audience feedback first. And this uh, first question is from a regular listener from Canada, from Chris George, British Columbia. His name is Jerry Chidiak. And this is a question about Gaza, but it's a different angle. He says, this is a question regarding the repression of free speech regarding the current crisis in Gaza. He says, people are being slandered for speaking up for human rights, and some are even losing their employment. Once this crisis is over, if members of the IDF and the Netanyahu government are convicted of war crimes and crimes against humanity, will those who have been slandered and wrongfully dismissed be able to press civil charges on the Zionists who attacked them and charged their employers with wrongful dismissal? And if so, why isn't the pro-Israel lobby taking this into consideration? Perhaps you could also address the training and financial incentives offered by pro-Israel groups like Honest Reporting. He says, thank you for clarifying. I'm a teacher and an op-ed columnist. I am always mindful of the potential for such attacks unless I weigh my words carefully. That's from Jerry Chidiak from Prince George, British Columbia. Any uh, comment on that, Ralph? Well, as Amy Goodman has reported on Democracy Now!, there's a wave of oppression of pro-Palestinian voices among students and faculty at universities and colleges in the United States. They're being as trustees and administrative officials of these institutions, being called by donors, threatened with withholding money if they don't silence these pro-Palestinian voices or censor or discipline them. And it seems to be getting worse as the drama, as the genocide unravels Palestinian Gaza. Instead of backing off, and saying, look, these people have a point. First of all, they have a right to express their opinion on the First Amendment, whether you agree or not. But second of all, there's a lot of substance to what they're saying. Look at the visuals. Look at the images. 
Look at the findings of uh, Israeli human rights groups day by day. It doesn't seem to be happening that way. The suspension of jobs, including public agencies, people are being suspended, job offers to law students being turned back. And it's all about importing the authoritarianism from this Israeli regime into the public dialogue of the U.S. So the question is not just what is the U.S. doing for Israel. The question is what is Israel doing to our democracy here? Not just how we spend our money, not just what Congress is doing, but how it's affecting people here. You can boycott the U.S. government publicly as a citizen and still do business with the U.S. government. But if you boycott certain state governments like Texas and say that you support a boycott of Israel until it respects Palestinian human rights, you can have your contracts rejected or pulled back with the state government of Texas. So it's a situation where the Israeli regime has more rights here than the U.S. government, which is unable to pull this off because of something known as the U.S. Constitution. And another point, of course, is that Netanyahu has far more power over Congress than he has over his own Knesset. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Thank you for that question, Jerry Chidiak. David, you want to jump in here? Ralph, if Hillary had won in 2016, was reelected in 2020, by now she would have picked four Supreme Court justices, which means six out of nine Supreme Court justices would either have been picked by Obama or Hillary. So how progressive would America be right now? Would her appointees be easily influenced by big money donors the way Alito and Thomas are? What would this country look like right now? And would we get Supreme Court justices that are immune to the temptations that Alito and Thomas don't seem to be? Certainly we wouldn't be getting the kind of Supreme Court justices that Trump has nominated or his predecessors. We would get more justices like Justice Sotomayor, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Kagan, called moderate Democrats, protective of civil rights, for example. Not all that great on corporate power, but not completely surrendering to it as well. We'd get more justices like Steve Breyer, and it wouldn't be anywhere near as intimidating to democratic principles and constitutional principles as the 6-3 majority now on the court. And we may see evidence of that on multiple decisions coming up in 2024 involving Trump and other petitioners. ProPublica recently launched a searchable database for the Supreme Court's financial disclosure paperwork. And it's a really interesting read. I'm just kind of plugging that for anyone who's curious. And there's a lot of crossover between justices, I would say on the right and left, but I would say most of them are probably center right, even if they were appointed by Democrats. I get the impression that they're pretty much all influenced by the same a lot of the same donors, a lot of cross-pollination from the same sort of benefactors. Well, the corruption of Clarence Thomas has been documented by ProPublico, the New York Times, and article after article. He's gone on these junkets by billionaires. He's accepted huge gifts that he has not disclosed. It's because until very recently, there were no ethic codes applying to Supreme Court justices the way they apply to lower federal court judges. And now they have a weak new code of ethics, 
but they leave its enforcement up to each Supreme Court justice, which, you know, makes a mockery of satire. So what we're seeing here are mealy-mouthed Democrats investigating in the Senate Clarence Thomas and, to some extent, Justice Alito's freebies and junket and not calling for the resignation. The columnist for The Washington Post, a Harvard Law grad, Ruth Marcus, just had a column demanding that Clarence Thomas recuse himself in the upcoming decision about Trump's assertion that he's immune from prosecution because what he did occurred when he was exercising his duties as president in the White House. And she should be asking for his resignation. And the Senate Judiciary Committee under Senator Durbin and Senator Whitehouse, they've got loads of evidence on Clarence Thomas, and they still haven't called for his resignation. Now, by comparison, under the period of Lyndon Johnson as president, Abe Fortas was a, a Supreme Court justice, was accused of taking a grant from a politically connected person who had a foundation in Florida. And after a few denunciations in the press, Abe Fortas tendered his resignation. Clarence Thomas has done far, far worse, and blatantly so. And he's arrogant about it, and he's defending it, and he's not remorseful. And the Democrats aren't even asking for his resignation. This illity decline in public ethics and morality, a decline is too easy a word. It's fallen off a cliff. And Clarence Thomas is really the Donald Trump of the Supreme Court. Ralph, I just want to follow up, as long as we're talking about the Supreme Court, how do you feel about the Supreme Court as a branch of government? Because when I look at what I know of the Supreme Court and the decisions they've made throughout history, aside from a few years in the 50s and 60s of the Warren Court, it seems like they've made mostly bad decisions on the big issues. You're talking about Dred Scott or corporate personhood or the Second Amendment or Bush v. Gore, Citizens United, the repeal of Roe v. Wade, you know, Buckley, Vallejo. They seem not to make good decisions throughout history. Is it worth it for them? Is it worth it for us? Well, they were the bastions of the property classes, as they used to say in the old days, and they made no bones about it. You know, they presided over a period of slavery. They presided over a period where women didn't have the right to vote. They presided over the Jim Crow period after the Civil War, and they didn't disturb the entrenched status quo of a corporatist white male domination. And of course, until recently, they were all white males. And as you say, starting with the Earl Warren Court, they produced Brown versus Board, saying that school segregation was illegal, and they fostered the civil rights movement in case after case. And then the Burger Court took over, Warren Burger, and turned it to the right. And then it hasn't stopped. It is now the most extreme court in generations with a 6-3 majority that is pro-corporate, pro-executive branch power at the expense of the Congress, anti-union, anti-worker, and anti-consumer. And the only time they defer to Congress and defeat the petition for the people is when they feel it necessary to rein in the regulatory agencies. But worse is yet to come. They may come out with a decision next year stripping the regulatory agencies of the delegation of authority to regulate 
corporations like the oil companies, the drug companies, the auto companies, they may issue a decision that strips them, saying that this is an unconstitutional delegation of authority by the Congress that is legislative in function and has no business being exercised by executive branch agencies, throwing it back to Congress saying, you want to regulate these corporations, you do it with thousands of pages of regulations, presumably, as if Congress has the expertise or is willing to labor more than three days a week when they're not in recess. So I think they are reaching a point, the sixth justice majority, of getting a huge backlash and calls for impeaching them altogether before the Senate. I've written an article several years ago saying, I don't call for impeachment of justices very easily. But when in case after case, these justices come down on the side of artificial entities called corporations, which are never mentioned in the Constitution, against real human beings, whether they're workers or victims of different oppressions or looted consumers, that when they continually vote in favor of artificial persons, are never mentioned or authorized in the Constitution, that that is a severe ground for collective impeachment proceedings before the U.S. Senate. I think that's what we're going to be looking forward to if the progressive liberal interests in this country have any sense of being able to look at themselves in the mirror and not be seen as surrendering the sovereignty that the Constitution gave them as real human beings, surrendering to the supremacy of giant corporations. I want to circle back to a conversation Ralph and Bruce Fine were having about the War Powers Act. And Elizabeth Holtzman, I believe, the New York Congresswoman who defunded the war. When you watch Joe Biden scrambling to get military aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, you see the Freedom Caucus reminding us that the power of the purse resides in the House of Representatives. I'd like the practicality of Congress actually stopping a war, how this would play out, because Nancy Pelosi, to her credit, voted against the war authorization in Iraq. And then she became speaker in January of 2007 and immediately said, as long as our troops are in harm's way, I have to fund the war, which was a really disingenuous thing for her to say. She was the Speaker of the House in 2007, and we're seeing with the Freedom Caucus what the power of the purse. Could you walk me through the practicality of Nancy Pelosi in January of 2007 becoming Speaker and doing what Elizabeth Holtzman did, defunding the war? What does that look like in 2007? Well, she said we have to support the troops, therefore she's going to support the funding of the criminal invasion of Iraq by her political opponents. George W. Bush and Dick Cheney in the White House. My answer to that at the time was, Speaker Pelosi, the best way to support the troops is to bring them home. Because two years earlier, there was a professional poll of U.S. soldiers in Iraq, including Marines, and it was approved by the Pentagon, and they interviewed statistically representative sample of soldiers who said that we should pull out of Iraq in six months, which is about what it takes logistically just to get everything out. And she could have referred to that. The way to support the troops is to bring them home from a criminal war that has never been declared under the Constitution and is a violation of international, federal, and constitutional law. She didn't do that. She succumbed to the hysteria of the times. She succumbed 
to the corporate and military-industrial complex swarming Capitol Hill, to the Israeli can-do-no-long lobby, which wanted us to go into Iraq and overthrow Saddam Hussein using American soldiers, and she succumbed to all that. In 1974, the Congress simply passed a bill cutting off funds for the Vietnam War that were not in the pipeline. There were enough in the pipeline so they could get the remnants of the U.S. military out of there as fast as possible. But Congress did it because Congress has the power of the purse. And the Freedom Caucus is quite correct when it says the Constitution puts the appropriation power first in the House, then it goes to the Senate, and then to the White House. That's been completely turned around now for decades, where the budget for appropriations is prepared by the executive office of the president in the White House and sent, presumably, to be rubber-stamped with minor tweaks by the House and Senate, which is what happened in the huge allocations of money for the Afghan and Iraq war. It's amazing that you could actually have a party run and say, vote for us for Congress. As If I'm elected speaker, I will bring the troops home. I'm not going to wait for the president. I will bring the troops home by defunding this. Exactly. Um, in fact, Madison said the Congress has the most awesome power of, of all, the power to declare war and the power of the purse. And it's using neither. It is letting the president and the military-industrial complex control executive branch, Pentagon, and the Congress. There's only bipartisan support for the military budget that in recent years has given the generals more money than they've asked for, as I've pointed out many times. In other words, the voter in America cannot say, I want to vote for the party who wants to rein in the military-industrial complex unless they vote for a third party like the Green Party. Both parties almost have the identical position in Congress on the military budget, which is the reservoir for the American empire astride the globe at the expense of public investment for the necessities of the American people here at home. And there will come a time when our domination of the world produces a backlash militarily equipped against our domestic society. We think we can continue to be immune from drone warfare and other kinds of warfare that we're inflicting on other societies. Indefinitely, we're whistling in the wind. And if the attacks do come, we will turn into a authoritarian regime where all dissent will be suppressed as we attack in all directions the perceived source of what caused the damage in this country. That's what we did after 9-11, spent trillions of dollars, and it has not brought us any security. It has simply postponed the time for the exercise of revenge by the innocent people in societies that we've blown up who had nothing to do with being threats or imminent threats to the United States. We know the names of those countries. I want to thank our guests again, the Reverend Dr. Donald Wagner. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For your podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up. Francesco DeSantis has the week off, so there's no in case you haven't heard, but there's plenty of other stuff for you to listen to. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. 
Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to Nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to CorporateCrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to TortMuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen. It's out now. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. And remember, to continue the conversation after each show, go to the comment section at RalphNaderRadioHour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next year on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you for a great year, Ralph. Thank you all that made it possible. And I'd just like to say to our listeners, when you get a copy of the Capitol Citizen, you can go to CapitalCitizen.com, order a copy or copies. You'll get it by return, first-class mail. Follow up some reporter friends you might have and say, have you heard of the Capitol Citizen? You might want to read it. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up. First up, Steve asked the Reverend Dr. Donald Wagner to tell us a bit more about the organization Friends of Sabeel. Reverend Wagner, talk about Friends of Sabeel, North America. Who is Sabeel? What is Sabeel? What is the organization about? What is the mission there? Sabeel started in Jerusalem by an Anglican clergyman, Naim Atik, as a liberation theology movement which takes the prophetic stance for justice among the poor, the disenfranchised, in this case, the Palestinians, and tries to build an ecumenical movement for justice. And we have a strong organization in the United States, Friends of Sabeel, North America. There are Canadian, there's a group in England and Australia, France. So we try to push the churches, but also work with progressive Jewish and Muslim groups and secular, you know, to just push the justice agenda. We're not huge, but we're growing. So that's what we're about. Next up, Hannah gets Ralph's opinion on the New York Times suing OpenAI and Microsoft for copyright infringement. My question is about the New York Times suing OpenAI and Microsoft for copyright infringement. I don't know if you saw the story. I think it broke today, Ralph. I don't know if you've seen it. No, I haven't. They, uh, they want to be, increasingly, they want to be paid for content. And Canada has a law now, modest, but Facebook and others have to pay the media for taking their content. And it's building up here. And by the way, Facebook and others are very belligerent. You know, they're, they're retaliating in a dictatorial manner, <laughs> censorious manner. It's amazing. They have governmental power. These corporations are private governments. I mean, they can purge all kinds of pro-Palestinian entries on, on the Internet and have been accused of such, for example. And, you know, nothing happens because they're not government. They don't violate the First Amendment. The First Amendment protects people from abridgment of their first speech by states. Action, as it's called, by governments. And these corporations are like government, and they steal content 
and they decide who gets on and who doesn't, and they're not held accountable at all. And the Congress is twiddling its thumbs and just beginning to learn even what technical questions to ask when Zuckerberg and others come up for hearings and play rope-a-dope, being very conciliatory, and then going back and doing the same thing, only worse. They do it in terms of promising that they won't directly market to kids under 13, and they continue to market to kids under 13 after they promise Congress they're not going to do it. Because there's no law. There's no enforcement. They're working in a, a vacuum of corporate dictatorial practices. Ralph, that's actually why I find the text of the actual complaint really interesting. They're not getting into the technical specifics. It really is just about good old-fashioned copyright law. And the Times is alleging that Microsoft and OpenAI used millions of their articles and other materials to train its tech and specifically sought them out because of the quality of their writing and then mimicked their style, created content and falsely attributed it to them, and also created content that was using their copyrighted material, created content that directly competed with them, in addition to kind of ruining their reputation by falsely attributing things to the times. Do you think it seems like some a, an angle that is a little bit kind of more straightforward? Well, welcome to the horrific new world of algorithmic dictatorship. What's happening, and Google started it big time years ago. That's how they became Big Google. They stole content that was copyrighted, and they justified it under fair use. You know, they're just fair use. Yeah, they gobbled up huge material, not just a few sentences or here and there from a book. And for a while, the copyright companies and the press, they didn't mind it at all because they were, they were getting more visibility. But then the tide began turning, and people began just relying more and more on Google and Facebook. And so finally the media is saying, hey, we're being displaced, and these cat GBTs are going to take it to the next level where they're going to take our content and twist it and contort it and make it even hotter for us to convey truth and make sales and profits. And so they're finally waking up. But you know how slow the courts grind on. And Google and Facebook and TikTok, they're very, very procrastinatorily skilled corporate lawyers who can trespass on eternity. The issue has to be taken by Congress fast. Finally, here are a few of Ralph's least favorite things about Justice Clarence Thomas. He has a huge network of former clerks. They're very powerful lawyers now around the country. The New York Times just had a page one story on his powerful network. His wife, Jenny, is an election denier, ferociously pro-Trump and very active. And he's a power in the Supreme Court, a political power in the Supreme Court. And how did he get there? He won the confirmation vote in the Senate over 30 years ago. When the Senate was controlled by the Democratic Party, the vote was 52 to 48 with 12 Democrats. Get this, listeners. 12 senators crossing the aisle and voting for Clarence Thomas, while the majority leader, Senator George Mitchell, was sitting there doing nothing, and Joe Biden, who was the chair of the Judiciary Committee, sitting there letting the senators decide without trying to influence them based on the hearings with Anita Hill and other witnesses who testified against Clarence Thomas. So it comes back to the Democrats. 
They made him possible, and he is torturing them day after day, year after year. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting with